Well, Ben is in his final year at university. He's uh, loved this course, uh, but he's come to the end and he's not sure what to do next. Some of his friends have got jobs all lined up. Others uh, are off traveling. He wants to do the right thing. He's prayed, but he's not sure what God wants him to do. Becky has three small children. For the last six months, she has been on maternity leave, and her days have been filled with caffeine and feeding and very full nappies. She loves being a mum, but she also loves her uh, job as a lawyer. And sometimes she feels pulled in two directions. She's prayed about it, but she's not sure what God wants her to do. Barry and Barbara, you can spot a theme here, have just taken early retirement. Their kids have left home. They've lived in the same town all their life. They've supported their local church as best as they can. Now they're wondering, should we move house? Should we go and uh, spend more time with the grandchildren? And they've prayed about it. Uh, They've thought about it. They're not quite sure what they should do. Well, none of those people, let me confess, okay, none of those people are real. Four imaginary friends, you probably guessed that. And yet, I'm pretty sure we could probably all relate in some way to them. Maybe one day we will relate to them if we don't right now. And the reason is because if we're sincere, if we're growing Christians, we want to do God's will. If God has begun a work in us, We want to keep on walking in ways, if we're Christians, that will please him. And in in this passage, Paul uses both those words, walk and will. Look at how the passage begins. And if you can do this, look also at how the passage ends. Paul says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you Receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Paul wants these believers to walk in a way that will please God. He uses the same word in verse 12. Maybe you can see that there. Walk properly. Now, these Christians, they're to be people who walk according to God's will. And what is God's Will. What is God's will for your life? What is God's will for my life? Well, drum roll, please. Look at verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. One big thing God wants for us is that we would be holy. Now, theologians, um, they've thought about this in terms of the past, the present, the future. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says to the, the church in Corinth, a very messed up church, he says that they are those who are sanctified. And yet in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says that they are being transformed calls them to cleanse themselves from every defilement of the body. In Jude, you and I read that one day we will be presented blameless before the presence of God, past, present, and future. We are holy. We are becoming, God willing, more holy. We will be holy. 
And it's the present aspect we're thinking about uh, this evening. Growing in holiness. And sometimes when uh, Marianne and I were, were sort of checking in on each other, uh, at the end of maybe a long day, we're sort of half, a, half awake, kids are in bed. I'll, I'll turn to Marianne and I'll say, what are the headlines? What are the headlines from the day? Just give it to me uh, in a few sentences. And in this passage, the first half of verse 3, I think, it's, I think it's the headline. This is the will of God, your sanctification. So God doesn't come to us and tell us who to marry or what job we should do or where we should live. And we should be very wary when people come alongside us and say, I know exactly what God wants you to do with your life. Instead, God gives us freedom. As long as a particular course of action doesn't go against something in Scripture, we're at liberty to make judgment calls. As long as, they, uh, as the, the, the thing we're wanting to do is something that we could call holy, uh, God is okay with it. And in our passage, this idea, this holiness, I think it's worked out in what we could call three spheres, three areas of life. If you picture one big circle with three small circles inside it, Paul addresses three aspects of our lives in these verses. And uh, in verses 3 to 8, he begins by speaking about our private lives. Our private lives. That's my first heading. Our private lives. First thing God calls us to in these verses is holiness in the whole area, the whole sphere of our sexuality. Look at what Paul says. He says, abstain from sexual immorality, verse 3. In the Bible, sexual immorality is any sexual activity outside the covenant commitment of marriage. And what do we mean by marriage? We mean a marriage between one man and one woman. And you don't need me to tell you that uh, those words in my notes today, they are outrageous, aren't they? And yet those are things that Christians have always believed. And one of the things we need to realize is that in many ways it is just as shocking now as it was when Paul wrote. The Greco-Roman world, it was a sex-saturated culture. God wants his people to be different. Look at the way Paul expands on all of this. God, Paul, gives us the thinking behind all of this. First, look what he says about sex and the self. Sex and the self. Paul says that we're to control our own bodies and maybe the kids, maybe you can see in verse 4, there's two words that begin with the letter H, in holiness and honor. Holiness and honor. What I think Paul is saying here is that the sexually immoral person doesn't have self-respect. 
They don't realize that their bodies have great dignity. They don't realize that they're designed by God to work in a certain way. Sex is for one context and one context only. There's one place it's safe, covenant marriage. And when we forget that, in many ways we are degrading ourselves. See, in our culture today, the person who boasts about having multiple sexual partners all at once. So often in our culture, they're, especially by young men, they're, they're viewed as a kind of hero, aren't they? And yet I wonder if we can see the sadness of that kind of behavior. I wonder if we can see that so often when someone does that, they're using others often to feed a deep sense of insecurity inside themselves. They've lost the sense of self-respect. They don't realize there is something better than that, that they were made for more than that, that they have more dignity than that. Sexual immorality and the self. Second, look at what Paul says about sexual immorality and others. In verse 6, he says that we're not to transgress and wrong a brother in this matter. And who is the brother? Um, Is it all people everywhere? Um, In many ways, yes. But I think Paul specifically here is talking about fellow Christians. That brother, uh, that word brother um, is inclusive in gender. Um, it can refer to men and women. And maybe you can sort of see that in verse 5, Paul has just said, we're not to live um, in a certain way. We're not to live in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, uh, by which he means those outside the church, outside the covenant community. And so I think when he speaks about brother, In verse 6, he's drawing a contrast. He's heightening the difference. And one of the things that healthy communities need are boundaries. We need them at work. We need them at church. We need lines. We need lines that aren't crossed. That's the meaning of the word transgress. We're a family as God's people. But there are boundaries And a Christian can commit sexual immorality by having an affair with a colleague at work. But the Apostle Paul is not naive. A Christian can commit sexual immorality by having an affair with a brother or sister in church. Don't think that doesn't happen. Don't think that's something we shouldn't have to worry about or shouldn't have to guard against. Sexual immorality in the self, sexual immorality in others, other Christians. Lastly, look at what Paul says about sexual immorality in God. Why are we not to behave in this way? Look at verse 5. According to Paul, sexual immorality is a sign of those who don't know God. 
And look at verse 6. The Lord is an avenger in all these things. It's a sign we've forgotten the judgment of God. And look at verse 8. Whoever disregards this disregards God. So can you, can you see what Paul is saying? He's, he's saying these things, these are not just my ethical opinions. This is not just my morality. This is how God has designed us to live. And one of the things we need to remember is that the devil will never show us the consequences of our sins. The devil will entice us, but as as someone once put it, he'll show us the bait, but not the hook. The devil will never show the despair, the tears, the pain, the deep pain, the sense of uncleanness, the memories. The devil will never show the impact of sin on families and children. He'll never show us the cost. And God wants to save us from that. God wants to help us in this area. God wants to bless us. He is not trying to spoil our fun. Some of us may have massive regrets in this area, this whole area. And there is always grace for uh, us as God's people, if that is us this evening. God made us. God loves us. God cares for us. There's no evidence, though, that sexual immorality was a really big issue for this church. Paul was in Corinth. It was a big issue there. He was in Corinth when he wrote this letter. There's no sense it was a big issue in many ways for them, and yet they still needed to hear these words, didn't they? They still, we still need reminders like this from time to time. When it comes to God, our private lives are never private. And that takes me to the second thing tonight. As God calls us to holiness, God doesn't just want to talk about our private lives. He wants to talk about our church life, verses 9 and 10. Our church life. That's the second heading. If Paul's talking about the human body in verses 3 to 8, then in verses 9 and 10, what he does is he turns his whole attention to another body, the body of Christ. And his big focus here is on the love Christians are to have for one another. Now, before we jump into these two verses, we need to recognize, don't we, what that doesn't mean. Love doesn't mean that we never say uh, hard things. Love doesn't mean that we always agree. Love doesn't mean, just saw, saw a wife nudging her husband. Uh, love doesn't mean we need to look, always look the same or think the same. It's amazing what you can see up here, just so you know. Or act the same. One of the problems in our society is that people uh, tend to gather in groups, don't they, uh, with people who just share their opinions. That happens online, doesn't it? Because of um, algorithms, we sort of live in a little cocoon. Uh, We maybe don't hear things that challenge our beliefs. 
about politics or COVID or society. We are a culture that claims to love and value community. And yet we don't really like it, do we? When, when community, whatever that you know, community, means bearing with one another or admitting our mistakes or patiently listening to somebody else. Instead, we're often quicker, aren't we, to drop people if we find them challenging. And in our culture, ghosting is a thing. Have you heard of that? Just ignoring someone, cutting them off. No explanation. And yet, as God's people, we're called to be different. Look at verse 9. Look what and look who Paul says taught these believers about love. God taught them. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God, he says. God taught them through Paul's ministry. As they heard God's word being taught, he spoke to them. They learned about the God of love. They learned they were to love like him. And what's really clear, as we've seen in this letter, I think, is that this was a really loving church. Paul says they've no need for anyone to write to them about it. And yet they're called to keep on doing it, keep on loving one another. You're Christians, they've, they've excelled in their love. And yet what does Paul say? He just says, love one another. Now, there are lots of um, great things about being a Presbyterian. I hope you believe that. Uh, one of the things, the best things, is that we are uh, bound together formally, officially, with uh, other churches. The church in Thessalonica was like that. It was connected to other churches in Macedonia. And uh, a few weeks ago at our presbytery, uh, there was a lovely kind of illustration of uh, the love that can exist between uh, churches in our presbytery. There was um, a minister, one of the ministers in our uh, presbytery, he, he shared a report about what's called a POV, a POV, a presbytery oversight visit. And this is when a group of ministers come to another church and they come to see how things are going. And we'll probably have one at some point down the line. Questions are asked about uh, how the congregation is uh, doing. Uh, they're listened to. The ministers are interviewed, all that kind of thing. Feedback's given. Suggestions are made. It's all about accountability. And what was so lovely at that presbytery meeting was that after that report had been given, one of the elders from the church that had kind of been under the microscope, as it were, and he got up and he thanked the group who'd come along. He thanked them for the loving way they'd gone about things, even though there were things for that church to work at. And he knew that they were loved. He knew that uh, these people wanted what was best for them. That's the kind of mindset that we're called to as God's people. We're called to love one another. Paul says, I urge you more and more. Do this more and more. He 
You know, our world's so confused about sex, isn't it? It's so confused about love. Our world has no idea what real love looks like. We do. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That is the kind of love that you and I are called to as God's people. Sacrificial love, costly love. So God wants us to live holy lives. He wants, he calls us to walk in holiness in our our private lives. He calls us to walk in holiness in our church life by loving one another. But there's a third, there's a final thing. God wants us to walk in holiness in what I would want to call our public life, our public life, verses 11 and 12. Uh, Holiness is not just about the bedroom or the Bible study. As God's people, we're to honor him, Paul says, in the whole of our lives. God doesn't just want um, some little corner. God wants everything. Now, maybe you uh, hear that and you find that uh, idea really daunting. Um, What do you think of when you hear the word holy? I think we often think of kind of, I don't know, a monk or a nun or something like that, or someone who just keeps the world at arm's length. We can think that a really holy person is the kind of person that would, I don't know, just read the Bible all day, pray all day. But that is not the picture that we see in these closing verses, verses 11 and 12. The picture here is of someone who is actively engaged in the world in a godly way. Look what Paul says, their aspiration, verse 11, their ambition, what's it to be? To live quietly, to mind their own affairs, to work with their hands, So Paul says that outsiders will see that they're not dependent on anyone. I was chatting to someone recently about uh, the film Hidden Life. I mentioned that film before. It's a a great film if you've not seen it. There's a line from the book Middlemarch that's quoted at the beginning of that um, film. It says this, listen to this, the growing good of the world... It's partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. And the point that George Eliot, the author, was emphasizing, was making is the immense importance of what we often think of as very ordinary lives, the kind of lives that people forget about. We often forget just how precious, just how valuable the ordinary things of life are. And we often talk about being radical Christians, don't we? It's good to be zealous for God, but I want you to see that in these, I think these verses are incredibly radical 
a quiet life, a steady life, a humble life, doing the work God has given us, providing for family, for others, filling out our tax return on time. Small, tiny little acts of kindness done for our neighbors. They, they might not seem radical, but in God's eyes, those kind of things, they are incredibly precious. Make it your ambition. Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands. And maybe tonight you look back on your life and you think, well, I've, I've not really achieved that much. I think Paul would say to you, there is great dignity, there is great immense value in a humble life, in a hidden life. Everything we, can, we do we can, can be done for God, offer to Him. Nothing, however small it is, that's done for the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing like that is ever wasted. And I think, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I think our culture today it is crying out. It is just begging for more of verse 11 and 12. Steady, calm Christians unflashy churches, stable families who, who keep on loving each other even through difficulties. That kind of thing is just so rare in Scotland today. It's what our culture needs so much. And I have often thought that in 10 years' time, in 20 years' time, when all the, all the sexual chaos, all the the transgender agenda has swept through our country when so many people have been damaged by that. I think this kind of thing will be incredibly attractive. Christians, churches full of people who, who live quietly, who mind their own affairs, who work with their hands who are humble. Those kind of people will become, I think, increasingly attractive and increasingly important. See, will we just, we hear about all this stuff that's going on in the news, will we just sit back and condemn it all? Condemn the craziness? Or will we, as God's people, will we be there in a few decades' time to pick up the pieces to model something different, to show compassion to broken people. God calls us to be holy. God cares about our sexuality. That's important to Him. God cares about our attitude to one another. God cares about our public, our, uh, our work lives. Maybe we find one of these areas harder than others. And yet, here's the phrase that's been in my mind as I've looked at this passage. I think, I think our holiness is to be holistic. Holistic. See, I said earlier, if you think about um, this passage, you think about holiness, think of it as one big circle with three inside. I think 
those three circles, they're not separate. They're all interlinked, really. God calls us to lives of holiness. God wants us to honor him in the whole of our lives. And yet, even as we do that, we need to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? He is the Holy One. He's the one who's done all of this perfectly. For the first 30 years, what did he do? He lived a quiet life. He worked with his hands. The book of Hebrews tells us he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And his moral purity has been counted to us as Christians. The book of Hebrews calls him our brother. He laid down his life for us. And he calls us, he calls us as his followers, as his people to come to show, to show the family likeness. That's what God wants for us tonight. This is the will of God for us, your sanctification. Well, let's ask God for help to live like that.